You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Uh, Giles, I'm well. Uh, interesting to hear you're down in Canberra test driving yet another EV. I guess it's a great perk to be uh, uh, a, a respected EV re- reviewer. You get to do a lot of travelling these days. But uh, on those lines, we're, we're going to talk about one of the with our special guest this week, one of the, one of the essentials of EVs. Well, exactly. Um, look, it's not. Uh, um, look, I'm, uh, you're right. I am down in Canberra. Um, we're going. The media has been invited um, for a couple of days um, to test drive the Kia EV6, which is Kia's uh, first um, electric vehicle. And it's going to be interesting because it's an SUV. It's not a low price one, but it's an electric SUV and it's got vehicle to load. And so we'll be able to share our views with that in a couple of weeks when the embargo lifts on it. So I look forward to that. And, of course, EVs are going to make an interesting contribution both to Australia's emissions profile, the changes in transport, but also the interaction with the grid. And possibly no better person to introduce you to now is um, Tim Washington, the CEO of Jet Charge. Tim, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. Look, I think we should first of all start off with congratulations. Jet Charge has just landed another $25 million in finance. Um, you've got some very well-known shareholders, including the Federal Government's Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So it was nice to see that the Federal Government um, clapping and cheering from the sidelines there about new innovations in electric vehicles. But tell us about the money. Tell us how important it is. Tell us what it's, you're using it for. Yeah, so we were very lucky um, to have amazing shareholders. Uh, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, as we all know, plays an extremely vital role in the clean energy transition. They backed us uh, in 2020 as part of our first fundraise, um, and they tipped in $3.5 million into our business, uh, really kind of to support us uh, as an Australian business trying to do things in the EV charging space. And, um, you know, just barely over 12 months later, we've, um, based on that, we've managed to raise 25.5 million. Uh, and this time it was led by the RACV, um, who many may know is an, um, automotive club based in Victoria. Um, and I guess we're using the money to do something that a lot of other EV charging, uh, infrastructure businesses, uh, don't focus on. We're actually using it to build capacity and capability in our team. Because one of the challenges I think we're going to face as a country is that this market will grow faster than anybody can keep up with. So right now, you know, we're at sub 2% of new vehicle sales and we expect to be over 50% of new vehicle sales in eight years. And so that's what, 25 times growth um, Mm -hmm. in eight years. And to do that, you know, everybody talks about how we need the cars and how we need the infrastructure and how they all need to work with the grid and everybody needs to talk to each other and all of that. But there actually needs to be people to do that. And so we as a business, we're close to 100 people and we're nowhere near close um, to being big enough to service that transition. Uh, and so most of the money is actually in building team and building capability. 
Um, because as you would know, the industry is so small, there's really not many people who know anything about EV charging. So it's up to us to really mm. train them, make sure that they're ready by the time the waves hit, uh, and make sure that, you know, all of the people involved in our business, whether it be installers who are putting in the charging stations or our firmware and hardware engineers coming up with, you know, charging and energy management solutions, um, basically everything is ready so that mm. when we go through that steep ramp, uh, we'll be there. And the thing is, everybody's pretty much buying their first electric car. And so when they have a negative experience in anything, whether it be for the car, the charging, whatever, they have doubts and they won't recommend it and scream it from the rooftops to people. So we want to make sure that we can be that service provider that people can rely on. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, so look, it's, it, it, it's interesting. Look, I'd like to get some of the detail of what it is that you're doing, but just tell us briefly about what distinguishes you from other EV charging companies. I mean, you've got like a manufacturer of equipment such as Tritium, which has you know, got quite a big share of the global market even, which is fantastic. You've got sort of networks like uh, ChargeFox and um, EV. What does JetCharge do specifically and where does it sort of fit into this sort of ecosystem of electric vehicles and charging? Yeah, so we're like the people behind the scenes um, that you don't really see. That's actually um, – so we do everything from, you know, uh, consulting on EV transition strategies where actual electricians who go in and install the charging station. So for a lot of these networks, we're the ones who actually deliver the sites. Um, we're also the ones who work on grid integration technology. So that basically means energy management to make sure, you know, buildings don't trip and sites don't trip as well as it plays nicely with the distribution transformer that sits on the street, and we work with utilities to do that. Um, and we're also the ones who do maintenance, um, who do support. So we're the ones who deliver the transition and then manage the electrons once the charging stations are in place. So we're quite independent. We're not um, – uh, we basically distribute for a lot of hardware brands. So, for example, we're Tritium's largest um, distributor in the country – but we distribute a lot of other brands as well. The only thing is we um, helped to co-found ChargeFox in 2017 and we still uh, own a portion of ChargeFox. And so that's an affiliation we have there, but otherwise we're very independent. Hmm. Tim, uh, could I ask, I mean, uh, a lot of stuff I want to ask about, but uh, as far as I can see, you're, you're a lawyer uh, by background, not really um, you know, a power engineer or anything. How, yeah. how just... just uh, in the history of entrepreneurs and stuff, how, how did Jet Charge actually get started? <laughs> yeah, I was a lawyer, but don't hold that against me. Um, so I wasn't very good, so I kind of got out of that. But really, it kind of came out of I went from the law to working in the family business, and then I realized I wasn't really passionate about clothing, which is what I was doing at the time for my family business. And uh, I wanted to do something in relation to vehicles and technology. And that's how I got into it. I kind of wanted to decide what's next. And I started looking at cars and I started looking at um, tech. And then my wife was the one um, who's a co-founder, Ellen. She said, we need to do something we can be proud of as a family. If I'm going to be supporting you for one year, uh, which turned into five years of support, actually, um, she said, you need to do something that's not another food delivery service, for example. You need to do something that we can be proud of. And so I started looking at EVs, and this was back in 2012. Uh, and back then, uh, Nissan um, had just released the Leaf. Tesla were about to do the Model S, and they just had the Roadster. And I thought to myself, 
well, I don't know how to build an electric car, um, so I don't know anything about that, but I wonder how you charge them. And then I started reading up on it and people said, oh, you charge it at home? And, you know, I wasn't sophisticated back then. I didn't know anything about electricity or, you know, cars in general really, but I thought that if you didn't have to go to a petrol station to fuel your vehicle, that has to mean something. I didn't know exactly what, but my gut told me it had to mean something significant. And so I decided to give that a go. Uh, and I literally tapped a friend of a friend on the shoulder who was our electrician at the time, Jay. Um, and I said, hey, you know, do you want to start a company that installs charging stations <laughs> for people? And he said, sure. So that's how Jet Charge was born. It's Jay, Ellen, Tim, which is kind of Jet. And because we couldn't come up with any better names. And um, and that was that. And then I bought a Tesla. And, you know, back then when you bought a Tesla, they treated you very well. And I was reservation holder 166 at the time. And uh, got introduced to the country manager and then slowly became their recommended installer in Victoria. Put a charging station on the wall, uh, which I think was one of the first in Victoria. And they did test drives out of my driveway for a couple of months while they set up their Richmond showroom. And since then, we've been kind of one of their largest contractors um, ever since then. Uh, and, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And I kind of knew the vehicle OEMs were key. And so now JetCharge represents almost every single vehicle manufacturer. When they bring an electric vehicle to market, we take care of all of their charging. Yep. So that's now, kind Tim, of how we grew it up. Yep. So I want to um, talk about a, a few things, but I, I guess in the looking forward, uh, I, the, the EV charging technology has been in a constant development like EVs themselves and uh, constantly scaling up, I guess, in power and things. And I was just looking at a journal article this morning talking about, you know, well, when once we get to uh, EV trucks, you know, that you might need almost megawatts uh, scale uh, chargers. In terms of the chargers that we have in Australia, what do you think's the, I mean, there's going to be a variety of capacities and powers and things like that, but what do you think's going to be the kind of, the, and also there are a lot of charging network companies building up uh, uh, NRMA here in New South Wales, and I guess RACV might do one in Victoria, and, you know, petrol companies are doing them as well. Could you just talk a little bit about how you see the industry structure as a business ev evolving? Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's take the most exciting one, which is truck charging. Um, that's going to be super hard. Uh, because uh, trucks can't really stop apart from their prescribed breaks that they have to take by legislation. So what that means is that it's not only about one megawatt charging of trucks. It's basically when they go to that road, um, basically that service stop on the side of the highway, it's not just one truck charging. It's 20, 30, 40 trucks charging at once. And so it's actually not about one megawatt charging. It's about 30 to 40 megawatt charging. And you really have to rethink how you design those sites, whether you co-locate generation and storage. So you definitely will need to co-locate battery storage um, and solar, possibly wind. But these are the kind of challenges that are being solved globally. Um, and in many cases, you know, it might not just be electric, it might also include hydrogen um, for those heavy vehicles. That is an area that I'm super excited about because I think it's really, really hard. Uh, and we tend to run towards the hard things. So 
I think that's super exciting. In terms of where the rest of the industry goes, you just need to follow where people mostly charge. Um, and so most people charge at home or at work. So that makes it about 80 to 90% of charging. So if you think about all the charging stations we're going to need in the future, 80 to 90% of them will be done where people can't see them. So in people's garages, in basements, in depots. And then the remaining 10% will be public charging, which plays a critical role um, for longer road trips, people without off-street parking, some people who live in apartments and commercial vehicles like Uber and taxi drivers. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to need a lot of charging networks for sure, uh, but the, there's no doubt that the vast majority of charging will happen at home or at work. I'll hand back to Giles. I just want to ask about the home charging network at the moment. I mean, uh, you know, as the 800-volt architecture, I think, will become more standard. And so, I mean, are we going to be looking at DC charges for, for, for homes and I, I don't know, 20 kilowatts or something, you're going to need three-phase power. What, do you think there'll be an industry standard model? And I'll shut up after that for a while. Uh, no. Um, so I guess the vast majority of people who purchase an EV today, forget about your 20 kilowatts and your three-phase, they plug it into a PowerPoint. And for most people, that's enough because they get 50 to 80 kilometres of range overnight and they don't drive anywhere near as much kind of during the day. And so regardless of how fast vehicles get in terms of public charging using 800 volt or if you're lucid, 900 volts, um, when you're charging at home, a lot of people will just plug into a power point. The problem with that, however, is that that's not visible to the grid, nor is it controllable in any way. And I know people kind of shirk at control. It's not really about control. It's about the option of control in exchange for monetary incentive. And so when you plug it into a power point, you're invisible to the grid. And so then the question is, how do we encourage people to install a charging, a smart charging station that is visible to the grid? Now, that charger I don't think will be DC because DC charging stations are inherently just more expensive. There is a move by some manufacturers in their kind of medium-term roadmap to potentially get rid of their onboard charger and rely purely on DC charging so as to save on component cost and weight in the vehicle, but that's not a settled strategy and there's nothing being publicly announced. And so um, it's all kind of rumours and, and all of that. But for the moment, almost all people will just buy an AC charger. Typically, our install is kind of between 7 to 11 kilowatts. So you're not going to have um, these really big charging stations in the home. You definitely don't need three-phase. Mm. Yeah, I've actually got a Tesla. Um, I've got a Model 3. So um, I'll spur further down the track for, um, than you were, Tim, when you were uh, order reservation number 166. But look, they were still <laughs> nice to me. Um, it wasn't quite the hero that you were at the time. But I've got a Tesla charger at home. Um, I actually dialed it down more than I dialed it up um, simply because I've only got five kilowatts on the roof. And if I go for a drive in the morning, go for a surf, I do about 40 or 50 kilometres. By the time I get back, I top it back up. And I've got most of the day to top it up with the sunshine. And so I do it at a rate which is less than the output of my rooftop solar. So it's nice to have that sort of flexibility. But I get what you're saying. Um, and, and, and from that point of view, I think, well, you know, did I actually need a charger? Uh, or could I just plug it into the house? But um, you're right, because the important thing about the future of the EVs and just their sheer volume and their sheer capacity is going to have to be not so much controlled, but I think orchestrated is the word, isn't it? the option of orchestration so it's never about control it's never about telling people exactly what they have to do it's about encouraging people to do certain things 
so that you never have to get to a point of control. Mm. Um, and the, the reason I'm concerned about plugging into a PowerPoint, apart from all the normal kind of safety risks, which is, you know, sidebar, an interesting fact is if you have in New Zealand, if you have a work vehicle, WorkSafe New Zealand has now deemed it unsafe to plug your vehicle into a PowerPoint if it's a work vehicle because your garage is now considered a workplace and you have to have a level two charging station installed yet. So anyway, that's pretty interesting. Um, But the reason I'm concerned is because when you're plugging into a PowerPoint, um, one, those PowerPoints aren't designed for 10-hour draws at 10 amps. Like they're just every day. Like it's it's not, they're not designed for that, Mm. that kind of application. And the second is that even when you do plug it into a PowerPoint, your house is drawing two kilowatts. Now, distribution networks, when they're figuring out what size distribution transformers they should have on the street, they work on a kind of a diversified load profile of between two to four kilowatts. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, if every second house has an additional two kilowatts for 10 hours a day, that mm-hmm. really blows their calculations out the water. And because they have no visibility and they have no control, they start having to build more infrastructure. And of course, when they build more infrastructure, we all pay. And so... My goal is to make sure that we have enough smarts in the way we deploy and in the way we encourage people to shift their charging habits so that we don't go through that and we don't have a repeat of what's happening with the solar industry right now. So um, we're not tra- we're not talking about sort of one-way traffic of electrons either. We're talking about two-way traffic electrons and the wonderful potential that that has. That means vehicle to grid. Tell us where we're at because um, as far as I know, we've only got one car, a fully electric car, which is the Nissan Leaf, which has full vehicle to grid capabilities in Australia. It's been here for two years. I understand there's been trials about how this might integrate with the grid and the standards and getting the networks and the market operator comfortable, but it seems to be dragging on a little bit um tell us where we're at and what the issue is yeah sure so um the reason why you've only got the nissan leaf as the full bev um as well as the mitsubishi outlander in the eclipse cross plugging hybrid in the PHEV segment is because vehicle to grid currently works with the chatamo protocol which is the dc fast charging plug and japan mm-hmm. has had it for a really long time actually um the standard for ccs2 which everybody else uses um is probably should be coming, the standard should be coming this year. It's been delayed a lot. But Volkswagen, for example, expect that all of their vehicles will be vehicle grid compatible from about this year. And so we should see mass adoption by 25, 26. Now, in terms of where we're at in Australia, we've actually just um, certified the first bi-directional charging station in the country ever. So it's, um, it's called the Warbox Quasar. Um, and it's a seven kilowatt bi-directional um, charger. And so yeah, that works with the Nissan Leaf today. So that's where we're at. And leading up to that, we had deployed a trial of 52 charging stations in the ACT with a whole bunch of people, including um, Nissan and ActuAGL and um, Evel Energy. And um, yeah, we were working on that to kind of see whether Nissan Leaf's can provide through bidirectional charging um, contingency FCAS support. And we're seeing whether these leafs can actually be called in just like stationary storage can to provide support to the grid when there's a frequency event. Um, and following on from that, because we've been doing that work, we've now certified uh, the Warbox Quasar. And so it's being deployed into wider commercial projects as well as going um, for retail sales now. So we're actually going to have households with Nissan Leafs 
um, basically using bi-directional charging stations. So the future is pretty much here. And we're kind of waiting for 2024, 25 for when this will be mass adopted by the CCS2 vehicles as well. Tim, I, I just got a couple of quick questions on that. Uh, the first one is price. I, from what I read, it's about a 10 grand piece of kit. How much more is that than the, the one-way charger equivalent? Much more. Um, so it's, you know, a one-way charger can be anywhere from like 900 bucks up to 2000 depending on how, how smart it is. And this thing's 10000 So obviously I've had a lot of people come to me and say, well, Tim, that's too expensive, uh, to which my response is, yeah, it is. It is too expensive because every new piece of tech is expensive. So, um, you know, Warbox have done a lot of R&D and they're taking advantage of them being really the only retail kind of um, brand that has this in the market. So, you know, they're basically making their R&D budget back. But in terms of value, it it actually offers a lot more value. So even though the sticker price is expensive, it offers a lot more value. Because the thing is, people who are looking for stationary storage, if they wanted to access 40 to 60 kilowatt hours like they have in the Leaf, they would be paying almost that much money, like 40,000, 60,000 to get that amount of stationary storage right yeah but, but, they, but, but they don't need that much stationary storage obviously they they, they need uh, you know 10 kilowatt hours say for a number so let's just say they get a 10 kilowatt right or a 14 kilowatt hour like in the power wall uh it's been a while since i looked up the price of the power wall recently but last time i looked i think it was like thirteen thousand or something like that so you can get a tesla power wall or you can get a bi-directional charger and get access to 40 to 60 kilowatt hours now no, you don't need 40 to 60 kilowatt hours of battery storage. But the reality is that you're, you've now got that much. So in the event of a blackout, um, although the Warbox Quasar needs another version to come to work in blackouts, but you've got that much storage in there. You can power your house for two to three days and you have the ability to drive somewhere for free charging at your workplace, for example, and then come home and power your house. So when you compare it to stationary storage, it's actually really good value because you didn't buy the Nissan for storage. You bought it for a vehicle. It just knows now so happens that you can also use it as storage. Yeah, yep, yep. I get all that. And I've been discussing that with some people on, on LinkedIn just uh, recently. We've been talking about it. Uh, uh, but, of course, you, um, there's also the alternative. Um, and One of the disadvantages potentially I see is that it's the charger that's running the battery, if I can put it that way rather than the car battery controller running the battery. So that's where the warranty kind of uh, things come in. Another way of doing that's, it... That's, sorry, um, that's not true. That's not true. The charger is not running the battery. The charger is communicating with the battery management system in the vehicle, and the battery management system is managing the battery. Thank you for that correction. I appreciate it. Um, sure. uh, another thing is but if you look at like the Kia and, and the EV6, uh, the Hyundai and the Ionic 5, they have AC out. Uh, why couldn't you just take an extension cord and I, I guess plug that into the same place in the switchboard where the where the grid comes in and and get a sort of similar thing as well? Um, so I'm not an expert in this area, and people will be able to explain this much better than me. But um, as far as I understand, you can't do that with vehicle to load systems, um, and you can only basically plug in appliances. You can't hook it into the you can't hook it into your house which is the same reason why on the Ford F-150 Lightning um, kind of advertisements about their backup generation, it's only in the event of a blackout, so you're not grid tied, because um, I can't exactly remember why that is. So 
you'll have to excuse me, but it's not the same thing as vehicle to bridge. You can't actually hook it into your switchboard. I mean, some people will try. Some people will try, but in terms of, but I, I am almost certain that Kia and Hyundai will be against their terms of service. Yeah, I, I got a couple of questions actually. Just um, you, you mentioned CCS two, and that's sort of standard, um, and and they'd be able to do vehicle to grid um, within a few years. Do you expect to be able to plug in your Tesla at some time, or do you think um, Tesla's just going to have this sort of you know attitude of they've got separate storage and and, and they're probably not going to allow that? Or what, what, what's your sense of that? I mean, I don't know whether you've got a direct line to Elon Musk or not, but um... no, um, no, and and I've given up on kind of guessing what Tesla's going to do. So I used to say that I don't think Tesla will allow bi-directional charging because it affects their Powerwall business too much. But then I also thought they would never open up their ultra rapid network. Um, their supercharging network rather. And so mm. I was definitely wrong about that. So I've kind of, I don't want to make predictions about what Tesla are going to do. Let's just say that because of their stationary storage business, they are less likely than other OEMs um, to open up mm. bi-directional charging. So um, I think even if they do do it, they'll probably be one of the last. Yeah. And just with, I mean, people often sort of, you know, look at the sort of the, the transition um, from petrol to diesel and diesel cars to electric and see many tens of millions and they multiply that by the amount of battery storage that's on those wheels. And they say, this is a fantastic battery resource. Is that just going to be like a notional number or do you think there's a real possibility that we'll actually be able to harness a great deal of that capacity for the grid? And Will we actually need it and will we know how to use it? Well, there's a lot of questions in there. So um, I guess the first thing is that will we be able to harness these batteries? Yes, absolutely we will. Um, and that's because essentially you need to charge the things, right? And so anytime you charge the vehicles, as long as those charging stations are smart, which I think they will be in the future, you'll be able to harness them from the grid, either through demand reduction, so don't charge the vehicle when the grid is under pressure, or through bi-directional, um, so, the, so, you know, pumping additional um, electricity back into the grid. And, you know, we've got kind of things in the works where we're doing wireless charging, we're doing bi-directional wireless charging, and these kind of things will become so easy and so common that you just drive the vehicle home into your garage onto your wireless charging pad, and without you having to do anything, it will both charge your vehicle or power your house or help the grid if you've signed on for a plan to do that. So it's not really about, I guess, drivers kind of um, having to do anything. It's just about them allowing things to happen and then getting rewarded for that if they choose to do so. Tim, I've got – it's um, it's a very complicated issue when we start to talk about the interaction of the behind-the-meter house uh, – uh, and and the grid, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that want to be able to control your meter for your solar, uh, uh, you know, and work out whether the house should be sending electricity to the grid or taking stuff from the grid, and 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 the EV's got to fit in with all of that as well. Am I right in saying that Jet Charge uh, builds its own software, or uh, you know, is that what some of your people? Uh, are doing or do you just uh, take other people's software and do you think there's going to be you know some one standard uh, interface uh, for for all of these different uh, uh, 
aspects of the house integrating with the with the grid? I know it's a complicated question, but the EV is an important part of it as we go forward. No, I mean, we do have software developers in-house uh, working on energy management software. Um, and so that's basically making sure that electrical circuitry is um, doesn't get tripped and working with the distribution networks on their assets. Um, so, no, we don't just take other people's software. We're mostly focused on kind of IP origination within Australia. Um, in terms of everyone trying to get to the same interface, yes. I think eventually we will need to have um, standards for how we control things in the home. And every university graduate and their dog is trying to come up with a startup that will help you control the home. So everybody wants to take control of the home. There's no doubt about that. But we don't really focus on that. We basically provide the technology to um, certain utilities to allow them to um, basically orchestrate what we call orchestrate the charging stations, um, which, you know, and they do it through the charging station. So that's what we focus on. Um, in terms of like having lots of different players coming in and trying to control your solar meter and, you know, your main electricity meter, yes, there are lots of companies who will continue to do that. But because we're such early days and almost none of these companies are actually making a profit, um, we're, it's going to be a while before it shakes out to see what's actually um, sustainable, both from an economic perspective as well as from an environmental perspective. Tim, I'd like to just go back to you talked about the trucks and they're needing one megawatt and, um, and, and, and probably a lot of trucks in one spot. Um, my understanding at the moment is some of these are very super ultra-fast chargers that we've already installed in Australia. Some of them are already being limited. So they're supposed to operate at 350 um, kilowatts. And I don't know of one not too far away from where I live. And it is really able to operate at that, that um, um, output, I understand, because the restrictions put on it by the local network. Um, how much of this is a problem? Is this, is this, is this a widespread problem? And, and, and what do we do about it? Um, it's not a huge problem at the moment because vehicles can't charge that fast. Um, but as mm. the as the station, so the site gets bigger and bigger with more and more charging stations, it will start to become an issue. Um, public charging of vehicles is manageable. Where it starts to become really difficult is where you have really large single site deployments of critical transport. And so you're talking trucks, you're talking buses, you're talking logistics depots. That's where you have to work really, really closely um, with the networks to make sure that um, you're all on the same page, essentially. Because I think what some people don't realise is that when, for example, the New South Wales government says we need to electrify 8,000 buses by 2030, it's not only a bus building challenge, it is absolutely an infrastructure challenge. Because mm. all of a sudden these depots, which have very normal commercial connections like 250 amps or less all of a sudden need to have the same connection as a university or a hospital right and there are hundreds of them um, just mm. in the metro area and thousands of them around australia and so you kind of go well how do we control for that how do we plan for that because getting that amount of power sometimes takes years but we don't mm. have years, so, yeah, it's interesting. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. No, but just back on that sort of fast charging, I was actually, um, I was lucky enough to get to, to drive a Porsche Taycan electric um, um, a couple of weeks ago, 
and I want to take it to the ultra fast charger. It's supposed to be able to do 350 kilowatts. Uh, it wasn't happening. It was happening at 40 kilowatts. And let me tell you, in a Porsche, that's really, really boring. And I'm not even a Porsche driver, so I'm not too sure what a real Porsche driver would have thought of it, sitting there for a long time having to wait up. What's happening there? Because my understanding is that the network, local networks are putting in sort of artificial, well, I don't know whether artificial, but they're putting constraints on that ultra-fast charging stations that rarely if ever gets to operate at that capacity. Um, so there's different um, there's different things at play there. Obviously, DC charging speeds vary depending on the vehicle you have and, you know, what state of charge mm. it is and what the weather conditions are. But 40 kilowatts is obviously very low. Um, some providers, they will sign what they call dynamic connection agreements with a network, whereby um, basically the network says, you know, we will give you this connection but only if the network has capacity. And if it doesn't have capacity, you agree to dial the charging station down. So mm -hmm. um, various providers sign these agreements with the networks as mostly as trials to figure out whether it's suitable or not. Um, if it's always been dialed down to 30, 40 kilowatts, no, I don't think that's suitable, really. Um, but generally speaking, I haven't really seen it kind of uh, that yeah. low. So, so just on, on that... To, you go, you go, David. Yeah, sorry. I, 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 and I think it's going to be very important that the that networks, you know, they'll probably ask for some more capex. And it's interesting to me that, you know, if everyone charges at once, all of a sudden we don't have enough substation capacity. Whereas at the moment the networks are complaining about solar pushing too much back, yes. uh, and, uh, and having to put capex. You know, one way or another, networks are going to have to spend some capex, and we are going to need a lot of sophisticated software, I'm sure. Uh, about that, but um, where do you think the public um, uh, network, I mean, it's not going to be one size, but what's going to be the most common size charger as we look 10 or 15 years down the track? I mean, you wouldn't want to build a 25 or 40 kilowatt system when if the whole EV world is going to move to eight or 900 volts and you could use 350 kilowatts. Um, I think the focus can't be on the bigger number. The focus has to be on use case. So, um, for example, if you put a charging station in front of a gym and you go to the gym on average half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour, there's no point in charging up in five minutes because then you're just blocking it for the next person. And so really it's about fit for purpose. It's not about what the biggest number is. So on highways, um, you're looking at 350, which is the big, the highest spec we have at the moment. And that's because people are in a hurry. They want to charge up quickly. They want to go in metro areas. Um, we're seeing around about 150 kilowatts as the sweet spot um, for basically high traffic metro areas for Uber drivers, taxi drivers, and supermarket shoppers, for example. Um, and then in shopping centers, anywhere from AC charging to 50 to 75 kilowatt charging is fine. And so it's horses for courses, and it has to be about, well, what are you doing at the site? Because very rarely will you as an EV driver if you're in a metro area, need to go somewhere to charge up zero to full unless you're a commercial driver. Um, if you're a regular kind of um, like a domestic customer, retail customer, or even if you're part of a fleet, you've got backup-based charging or you've got home charging. And so, you know, if we build 350 kilowatt chargers everywhere, that would be a real challenge. The focus has to be more about quantity of chargers rather than the highest speed because with EVs, you're not with the car. And so you need to have as many charging stations as possible so that you plug in, you walk away, and you can service as many people as possible, which is why I've said for a really long time that the balance of power in relation to charging will shift from petrol stations, which actually have very little land, 
to um, places with the largest car parks. And the people who have the largest car parks are people like supermarkets. My last question, I'm just going to ask for your opinion. It's probably uh, you may not wish to answer, but I mean, Tritium's been doing very well and listed on the stock market. And uh, I'm just wondering if you think there's, you know, as a brand, uh, it has something that really makes that's a sustainable competitive advantage, if I can put it that, in terms of its technology as compared to all the other charges that you look at. Oh, I, I, absolutely, I think it does, um, because it already is competing at a global stage with the largest electronic manufacturers in the world. You know, ABB, for example, is a classic one. We distribute a lot of ABB products, but at an international level, Tritium and ABB, Siemens, they all go head to head, and Tritium has been able to hold their own. Um, and, and look, you know, if you asked me six, seven years ago, I would have given you a different answer, but I've been really impressed by how some of these startups have been able to match up with the best and have actually gone faster and matured faster. And so, you know, like I think that's really, really impressive. So, yes, I think they can match it for the long term. One final question from me then, Tim. Um, I fear that this year in 2022, despite the sort of big, you know, trebling in EV sales in 2021, we're facing a few problems, supply problems, delivery problems. A lot of the popular models, they're just not widely available in Australia. I'm just thinking of, you know, what VW is not available at all, Polestar, Volvo, uh, Kia, Hyundai, I've uh, only got a couple of hundred models available for what are, you know, pretty impressive new EVs. Even Tesla's now saying there's a seven-month wait for the Model 3s. Um, it sounds like we might be a bit of a slowdown, which is really frustrating to all the people who obviously want to buy EVs, uh, including one member of this podcast uh, panel. Um, is this actually an opportunity then to rather perversely that we can finally catch up in the EV charging network? Uh, I think you're going to see uh, a lot of EV charging going in this year. I think everyone will be surprised. You know, they'll wake up and there'll be another one next to them. Um, so, you know, um, in terms of the slowdown, yes, I think I agree with you. Um, we're just not getting the cars in the volumes that we need. And that's because oh. we don't have the kind of CO2 emission standards that the rest of the world does. Um, and they command the cars first. In terms of the charging networks catching up, yeah, look, I, I think I think there'll be more charging networks and I think the build-out speed will be faster than before. Uh, you've seen some major announcements come out over the past you know, year on what the charging networks are going to be from different state mm. governments. It's really exciting for the charging space. We just need the cars now. Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. David, we're going to have to uh, leave our conversation about the ISP and the reaction to it another major things till next week so i think we're running out of time um tim um just for me thank you very much for your participation today on the energy insiders podcast um i just have to point out that um uh, on our ev website the driven uh, we actually just recently conducted a uh, quite a detailed serving survey about charging habits or from ev drivers and prospective ev drivers uh, in conjunction with jet charge and we'll be publishing results of those um very very soon um, so that's pretty exciting. It's going to um, um, provide some valuable insight. So, Tim, once again, congratulations on your fundraising and uh, good luck with all your um, endeavours going forward. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. And thank you, David. We'll be back again next week. Thanks to our sponsors, of course, Evagen and Pylon. Thanks to all the people out there listening. Uh, do check out our Solaris Insiders podcast and our Driven podcast. Uh, we've got an interview with Saul Griffith uh, from Rewired Australia. Um, this week so that's a great interview as well um that's it for today back again next week bye for now
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.